0: Basically, none of us had been there uh, to where we landed. As a matter of fact, the Navy had, planes had, had not been there either. We were all sitting out there in the middle of what's called a deep field. That's the type of expedition, a deep field expedition is the type of expedition that's beyond a, a helicopter rescue range. If you get in trouble, you're on your own, and you have to wait for a weather window so a Hercules can come out and take care of you. My name is uh, Bruce Lindike. Le- I'm a retired professor of earth science and, and geophysics at UC Santa Barbara. I'm here to talk about one of my experiences in the uh, Antarctic. And the first time I went down, the first of nine times, I went to an area called Marie Birdland, first seen by the explorer Richard Bird in 1929. And I've written a book about this called The Mighty Bad Land. Perilous expedition to Antarctica reveals clues to a lost continent.
1: This is the Historians Podcast, and I'm Bob Cutmore. Bruce Liondyke with us, author of Mighty Badland, which is a play on the words about Marie Birdland. What's what's bad about it?
0: The weather leaves something to be desired, <laughs> that's for sure, and it, it can be it can be dangerous. Uh, so uh, we've learned both in our expedition our small team six people went out to into the wilderness of Marie Birdland, land and we learned uh where the nickname comes from uh, we didn't make that up i was i was told about that nickname by actually uh some veterans this trip
1: that you made that you write about now took place 30 years ago why does it take so long to get out the book
0: for 20 of those 30 years i was still an active Professor doing teaching and research, so I was kind of working 110% of the time. When I retired, I had the great idea well, why don't I write a book? Uh-huh. I had to learn how to write to start with because I wrote like a scientist and not like a normal person. So I took classes in writing. That process was multi years uh, doing that. To answer your question more directly, I couldn't carve out the time to really get into it. And the, the I think the more important thing is um, I didn't actually know the effect that the uh, experience, experience, this experience, the other experiences had on me in Antarctica. So I was a little fuzzy on the theme that I would pursue. I knew that I was thinking about my experiences Almost daily, and so there was a story in me, but I wasn't exactly sure what it was. And then, of course, I didn't have the the skill set of a writer yet, and that, that took quite a while to acquire. So, long answer to your question: um, those are the multiple reasons that it took me thirty years. But I, right. I remembered it was a. I was surprised when I started to write and looked at my. I had, of course, I had journals. And documentation and things, uh, but I was surprised about
1: how vivid some of my memories were. Things I could remember it surprised me. What is you said you were searching for the theme? What was the theme? What did it mean to you? Explore Antarctica for such a long period of time. I like to think that it's about
0: leading an expedition that has geological goals and looking for discoveries, but I discovered things about myself. I had to put a, a, a sharper point on what those things were. So the book, you know, although it's a bunch of scientists, you know, a bunch of science nerds who go out into the wilderness and use all sorts of things and get into trouble, but the book is a personal journey. Is a genre I learned about when I was taking classes in, in, uh, in writing, it's called the hero's journey. It started at some point in your life, and then there's an experience where you grow through it, and you come out the other side, and you're a little bit different than when you first started.
1: You also say that you were influenced by the exploits of explorers who came before you, especially Ernest Shackleton. Who was he?
0: <laughs> right. That's, that's that's the question I asked, uh when I was a, a college student, uh, who was Ernest Shackleton? I I asked the, that question to um, a bunch of retired Navy salts I was hanging out with uh, my first when uh, my first jobs in college. He, he was uh, an explorer of the heroic age, in in Antarctica. And uh, what he's most famous for, well known for. He's British. Uh, He led an expedition that was aiming to cross Antarctica from the Atlantic uh, coast uh, to the Pacific coast to where McMurdo is right now. And uh, he deployed his crew uh, on one ship in in the uh, Atlantic side and in another ship in the Pacific side. What happened was his ship on the, in the, uh, in the Atlantic side, uh, in, up against Antarctica, got trapped in the ice and then crushed by the ice. So he and about 30 of his crew members got marooned there. This is in 1914. He figured out a way how to keep everybody alive and to actually uh, arrange the rescue of them. And the story is quite remarkable. Like, probably if I had to recount it, I'd leave out some important details at the moment. But, uh, when I first heard it, I just, I thought it was pretty unbelievable what he did. He crossed from Antarctica to the tip of South America to start the rescue of his, of his men. And he did that in a lifeboat with a few other, uh, his crew. So that was very, very, very captivating and, uh, I, I I thought about it for a while. I was a young college student, and then when it, when I was a professor, I uh, bumped into his book that Shaglin wrote about this experience. It's called South, and that further gelled in me this inspiration of. Uh, I knew I couldn't follow his footsteps or I didn't want to, <laughs> but it was so inspiring and such a unique story that it really stuck with me. And eventually what happened after that was I started working in New Zealand and was a partner, and we found that there were some questions about New Zealand that would be best answered in the Antarctica. That sort of lit the fuse on us to organize an Antarctic project, and I think I wouldn't have done that if I wouldn't have taken that step if I hadn't been inspired by Ernest Shackleton and his
1: exploits. A little uh, detour before we started (laughs) the recording, I mentioned that we uh, here, where we do the Historians podcast. Uh, we're in the Schenectady, New York area, uh, which is the place that the U- U.S. Air Force uh, has crews who go down to uh, New Zealand to fly people such as yourself uh, to the Antarctic. And you said you actually uh, knew of those people, but but you didn't know them well. You you just basically uh, get a ride from them. Is that the idea?
0: Yeah, that's. That's the idea The you might want think about the question, how do you get there? New Zealand is a jumping-off point for getting to that main sector of Antarctica, the continental sector. And um, the way I've traveled there was uh, actually three different ways, four, actually. Uh, at, for at first, we had a U.S. Navy... Squadron would take us on Hercules cargo uh, aircraft. I also flew with the uh, New Zealand Air Force, which has uh, uh, Hercules cargo aircraft also. And then the Air Guard the, uh, from Schenectady, they had Hercules, but now they have C 17s and C 141s that uh, fly down there. So it's totally different scene as it, it was in 1989. Made my first trip, so that gets you to McMurdo Station, the main u s base on the continent of Antarctica, and it's a logistical hub for uh, science mm-hmm. and And in the summertime, you know, which it is now there, there's about maybe twelve hundred people is the max there including the military uh, air wings. But where we were working, where we went, wanted to go work, was 800 miles away from McMurdo Station. So to get there, we took um, Hercules with skis on them and flew out 800 miles to the uh, east from... McMurdo Station, where we got dropped off with all of our supplies in the middle of absolute nowhere. How long did you stay there? Well, on the first trip, first expedition, it was about six weeks. So the total operation is you get to, to uh, New Zealand, and then you wait for a weather window so that you can fly to uh, McMurdo Station. Then at the McMurdo Station, you organize your gear and you take some classes on snow and ice craft. They call it survival school. And that t- so that all takes about two weeks or so, especially waiting for the weather. And then out there in the field, when we set up our tent camp, the six of us, we were there for almost six weeks. And then we waited for... Uh, Get picked up and pulled out for about a week, Mm -hmm. and then back in McMurdo, we packed up all of our gear to ship back to the U.S., and that took another couple of weeks. So, you add that all up, and you're pushing pushing three months for the whole expedition door to door.
1: Now, you're were you in charge of this uh, expedition?
0: Yeah, I was called the principal investigator, which means I'm the lead scientist of the project. And we had uh, six people on the team, the field team. Uh, Four of us were uh, geologists. So I was the lead or the principal investigator. One of the geologists was a woman graduate student of mine. And then we had two uh, people who are called mountaineers. These are uh, people who know snow and ice craft, and are in charge of safety, making sure that we don't do something dangerous or stupid or both. Mm-hmm. And uh, and one of the one of the mountaineers had been to Antarctica. The other one had not. And the one who had been to Antarctica had been to the uh the uh, the peninsula antarctic Peninsula uh, below South America, not where we were so basically none of us had been there uh, to where we landed As a matter of fact, the navy had plane that had not been there either so um we were all sitting out there in the middle of what's called the deep field. Uh, that that's the type of expedition. A deep field expedition is the type of expedition that's beyond uh, a helicopter rescue range. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it, it's if you get in trouble, you're on your own, and you have to wait for a weather
1: window so Hercules can come out and take care of you. A uh, Bruce Lyndayk with us talking about an expedition he. Was on I think some 30 years ago at well his book is called Mighty Bad Land. It was in Marie Birdland, a section of Antarctica. Why did you? What was the point of this from the point of view of science? What were you trying to accomplish, and did you accomplish it? Right. Yeah, why do we go to all this trouble? <laughs> um,
0: well, we were testing the notion of how the supercontinent of Gondwana uh, uh, broke apart in the deep paths. Um, and specifically, there was this hypothesis that's around it originated up against this part of Antarctica in in Gondwana land, in Gondwana. So I mentioned earlier that I had been working in New Zealand with, with my colleague Dave, Dave Kimbrough of San Diego State. And so we were testing that idea that, well, does New Zealand make sense up against this part of Antarctica. And the, the, the basic notion is if you think of a newspaper and you tear it in, the, in half and you've got print on one side and you've got print on the other side of the tear and you can you should see if they can match up. So the sentences go across the tear and that's what we did. We We were looking for geological similarities between the two regions of uh what we what was known about New Zealand geology and what we would find out about the geology in Marie Birdland. So the answer to the question is uh, did you find out? <laughs> yeah. Um yeah. Yes yes we did. We found uh, a strong correlation between mountain ranges that uh Dave is particularly had studied in, in New Zealand with the mountain ranges in what's called the Ford Ranges of Byrd Birdland. And we also found out that um, the timing of when the mountains started to form there was, this is unexpected, it, it was much older than the, when the, uh, the breakup of the Gondwana had started. It was about 20 million years before that breakup. So that was uh, curious and interesting. Uh, And then we found out that um, we were working, of course, in in an area that was was mountains poking up through uh, ice sheet, right? The Antarctic ice sheet. And we discovered that uh, as we Surveyed the area and traveled around in it, evidence that the ice sheet had been much much thicker uh, and had covered a lot of these peaks that we were walking over in some time in the past, which we eventually, when later expeditions mm-hmm. figured out when that was, and so the, the ice sheet had had, had shrunk. But the, uh, I think the payoff that really. Uh, which is in the title of the book, um, was that when we figured out the, how the matchup works with New Zealand, uh, and we we also figured out that the the submarine the submarine plateaus that are surrounding New Zealand and in the sector of the southwestern Pacific. And they also fit up against uh, Gondwana. So They came from Gondwana, also. Besides what we what we recognize as the island of islands of New Zealand. So these submarine plateaus are sunken continents, pieces of sunken continents, and they're out of sight. Mm. And uh, we gave them a name, uh, Zealandia. Mm. And New Zealand is the part of Zealandia which sticks its head up above sea level but the rest of the Zealandia is submerged and it's big it's a, it's a bunch of pieces but if you add them all up it's about the size of India so huh. that I think is, has attacked, attracted a, a lot of scientific attention in particular from uh, New Zealand scientists and scientists in that part of the world What's
1: it like living there in Antarctica?
0: Yeah, what's it like living in Antarctica? Well, well let me uh, <laughs> How about if we pose your question, what's it like living in a tent in Antarctica? <laughs> yeah, when I first heard that, when I, when I wanted to do this project that I have to go out into the wilderness and live in tents, I kind of had this what uh, reaction it's cold right really what it is is hard it's just really hard because um it is cold i mean i was never naked you never take your clothes off uh, you're, you're always wearing some layer you're alone it's isolated you don't have any communications other than a shortwave radio that you call in check in once a day with Myrtle Station to make sure that they know you're still alive you're still there. It's physical. You're always shoveling snow or hauling around a box of rocks or hauling around a box of food. I think the biggest impact I had was the aloneness. That's um, something that stretches your mind
1: uh, because you are so very, very alone. How did you, I, I don't know, uh, get past that that aloneness? I say that
0: I actually didn't. Um, it's it's something that y- you you discover, like, hey. I'm really, there's nobody here. We're 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 alone, and then it's something that you just start thinking about and getting used to, and but you always know that that you're on your own. Um, like people have asked me questions like, Is "That dangerous? It sounds it sounds kind of dangerous," and yes yeah it's dangerous um the what the level of danger there is it's unique but um you know driving on the freeway u you know, s is dangerous also the difference is that you're not gonna get rescued uh, there's no you know Nine nine one one. You can't call nine one one. There's no helicopter dropping in there to evacuate you. So if there's a problem, if you're having,
1: if you're in danger, then you have to take care of it yourself. Can you say what was the worst thing that happened to your group while you were there? I
0: could. I I don't
1: want to make a spoiler
0: of this. I don't like people to. Read my read my book, but in that environment where we're living on ice sheets and traveling on glaciers, there's um, some obvious things that you worry about, like gliding um, down ice slopes, falling into crevasses, um, you know, just having everyday accidents of you know, dropping things in your feet and things like that. But, um, yeah, we've we encountered all of that, all of those types of challenges in our first trip and, and other trips.
1: You're there for all this long period of time. You can't bathe. Do you smell? Yeah. The,
0: I brought some... Deodorant with me, but it was always frozen, so I couldn't use it. But you, you don't—you're not really bacteria can't live there because it's so cold. So you don't have like bacteria on your body to create BO. Um, that, that kind of surprised me. Um, huh. I didn't—I didn't bathe. I, you know, a couple of sponge baths, a couple of us. And, uh, brave enough to take a full body bath once I, I did that in different expeditions, I took a full body bath once so Well, what, what I did is I took uh, sets of uh, long johns of course, wearing that and, and wear them for a week and then reverse them wear them inside out and wear them for another week and then when that's gone, you get another pair of long johns, put that on, and do the same thing. So, yeah, and you're, you're not washing your hair. <laughs> that got pretty annoying. Uh, but um, honestly, it's something that I didn't think that much about
1: um, because there's so much else going on. What <laughs> was it like? When you finally left, you got back to, quote-unquote, civilization. Yeah. yeah. Um,
0: well, the first thing that happens is that when you're in a camp like we were, um, the way you get to the camp was with the uh, with, uh, air support, with the uh, Hercules, with the skis, okay, so to get there, the flight's called a put-in, where they dump every dump you and everything out on the snow. And to get out, what's called it's called a pull-out. So the, the plane comes out, lands, and picks you and all your gear and all your rocks, and takes you back to, Mc, to McMurdo. So getting back to McMurdo is one step, where uh, all of a sudden there's a lot of people and there's vehicles and, and there's people are cooking your food in a, in a cafeteria and you're sleeping in a bed <laughs> all these different things there's the creature comforts kind of strike you when you first get back you can get a haircut you can take a bath et cetera Then um, but what is really remarkable is um, traveling back from McMurdo to uh, what's called civilization, which would be Christchurch, New Zealand, in, in our case. And I remember that flight, an eight-hour flight, and uh, we landed there at night. Well, that's one of the things you learn when you get out of uh, the field there and fly north is day and night as opposed to being in the field where we were, day it's daylight all the time. And so the first thing was, discovering there was night, remembering night. And then the, the, the smell, I could actually smell um growing things. I could smell plants. And the, 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 was, there's nothing growing in, in Antarctica, so there's this sterile this is the sterile air. And then all of a sudden there's um night and then there's the smell of life growing plants. And then the next day, there's traffic and advertising, and you're (laughs) back in it.
1: (laughs) Well, Bruce Dyke, thank you very much for this account of life in Antarctica. He's author of the book Mighty Badland: The Story of His Explorations in Antarctica in the 1990s. The Historians Podcast is produced by Dave Green. I'm Bob Cudmore. Uh, We need your contributions to keep going on the podcast. Go to our website, bobcudmore.com, and press the blue button to go to our GoFundMe campaign, or write out a check to me, Bob Cudmore, and send it to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Bruce, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Bob. I appreciate this opportunity.